This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 670. And the quote of the day is, live less out of habit and more out of intent. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 670. Thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate you being here. And I'm really, really stoked about this episode with Ryan Dusick. Ryan is the founding drummer for Maroon 5 and tells a crazy story about how he formed this band, met all these guys in, in you know middle school and, and started playing in high school and, and grew Maroon 5 from a... a garage band nobody band to a world touring band with with multi-platinum album sales and i remember when they were coming up and i and i remember hearing them hearing them play and thinking how great they sounded and how polished they sounded and i mean that in a good way not like not like bubblegum cookie cutter polish but just sounded like a great band and then come to realize oh they were a band for like 10 or 12 years before they actually hit the mainstream and Ryan will talk about it a lot in this episode, but he went from being in Maroon five to developing really a, a debilitating injury that forced him to leave the band and, and went down a road of, of alcoholism and to recovery and, and actually just wrote a book about a card harder to breathe. It's a memoir of making Maroon five, losing it all and finding recovery. So we talk about that, the entire journey, uh, and a lot more. So super stoked. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Ryan Dusick. Ryan, what's happening, man? Great to have you. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. We were just talking. We could have, we could have done this in person, but maybe that would have, that could have tied up, uh, both of our days much longer because that the commute over the hill or back can be can be uh, very time consuming. Very true. LA traffic can be uh, can be some. So you're you're. I look at you as as a rare breed because you're a you're a born and bred LA guy. And I feel like when I when I talk to people here and I and or or you know and oh I live in LA. And it's like oh but where are you from? Right. But you're in LA. I mean you're you're born and bred here, right? Yeah, I've lived in LA my whole life. It's uh, I, when I say that to people that I just met, they find it hard to believe because they just—I think most people assume that everyone in LA is a transplant, right? Right, right. Uh, but yeah, I grew up right in the middle of LA, right in uh, a town, a neighborhood called Carthay Circle, um, which is kind of near the Miracle Mile area in between there and West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and I uh, went to school on the West Side. I lived on the East Side. I live in the Valley now, so I've been all over the city. Nice. Do you think that, uh, well, I, I talk about it all the time. I'm like, if I would, if I was born and raised here, there's not a chance in hell that I would move anywhere else. Right. I mean, it's like the weather's perfect. Everything, everything is great here as a, as a native Californian. Are you some, were you ever like, man, I really feel like I need to get out of LA. Uh, I never did before, you know, living in the Valley now with the fires and the heat is the first time I've ever been kind of like, yeah, and it's, you know, of course, it's expensive to live in LA, so you can right. probably get a lot more for your money elsewhere. But, uh, but yeah, no, most of my life, I, I've I've loved living in LA. It's a great town, and yeah, the weather and everything. There's so much to you know within such a short distance. You can go skiing in a couple hours. You can go mm-hmm. to the beach. 
you know, what, what more could you want? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there's pressure to go into the entertainment industry living here? I mean, probably more than some towns. I, this is my only experience. Obviously I didn't grow up anywhere else. So this is all I know. But at the same time, my experience growing up in LA was not that it was what you see in the movies in terms of like, everyone is fame obsessed and, and everyone is an actor and trying to go into the, to the business. Right. Um, I lived in a neighborhood with middle-class families that were just, you know, working and living life like you would anywhere else. Certainly the Hollywood, you know, scene was a part of uh, the reality. And as I got older, I think when I was a young adult, I guess, you know, you go out to the nightclubs and stuff and you see more of that element Mm -hmm. of the, the folks coming here for the fame and the fortune uh but up until up through you know school and stuff it it was just like growing up in any other city yeah i remember watching a uh there was a documentary on dr dre and uh why i don't know why his name is escaping me um the guy who started interscope records why i can't why can't oh jimmy ivine jimmy ivine so and he was saying when he was living in new york he came out here to work on a record and uh and was staying at a hotel and came downstairs and he goes to the bellhop and he was like, do normal people live here? And he was like, what do you mean? Do normal people live here? He's like in Los Angeles, do normal people live here? And he was like, well, I'm a bellman and I live here. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so he goes back upstairs and he calls his mom and he's like, mom, how did we screw this up? How did, why are we living in New York? When, Cause he was, he, were, he was here in the winter. And he's like, how, are, how did we screw this up and live in New York when it's 10 degrees out instead of living in Los Angeles when it's 75 and sunny every day, I'm never coming home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I can attest to the fact that normal people live here. Absolutely. Right. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. But it is, it is when you, when you go other places and you experience a real winter and then you realize that it's, you know, pretty nice here. Most of the time you feel pretty lucky. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, So talk to me a little bit about, about growing up. You and I are around the same age. And for me, it was whatever was playing on the radio. It was, you know, it was Bon Jovi. It was Guns N' Roses. uh, And then, as I started playing music, I, my my music horizon started to to you know grow, and I started to to listen to more more things. And uh, what what was it like for you growing up? What what kind of stuff were you listening to? Yeah, it was not dissimilar. I mean, in the eighties, it was Rick D's in the morning on Kiss FM, you know, and got a good mix there of the top forty from Michael Jackson and Prince to David Bowie and Billy Idol and. Um, I had a pretty eclectic um, upbringing in terms of music. I had uh, music in my family on both sides. My mom's Latin American from Mexico, and uh, her family played a lot of music. My uncles played guitar and drums and jazz and blues and and Latin music. Uh, My dad's family, uh, my aunt on that side was a Broadway singer, uh, is a, a she's still around, (laughs) Uh, Michelle (laughs) Lee great performer and she was a tv star and stuff and um so i kind of got a different world from from my dad's side um and but then me and my brother we got into rock pretty young we were really into the police Mm -hmm. um and stuart copeland was probably my first drum hero um and then in the late 80s when i started playing the drums uh you know i got my first drum kit i think 1989 uh, it was the era of headbangers ball, you know, it was, <laughs> right. it was definitely, I learned to, to twirl my sticks. I think before I learned how to play a beat, <laughs> it's very necessary. Very necessary. Yeah. So uh, it was 
definitely, uh, you know, Motley Crue and, and uh, Guns N' Roses and all that. Bon yeah. Jovi. And I know that I know that you played baseball, played drums. Was there was there ever a crossroads where you? And I know you had an, an injury, uh, and we'll talk about that for sure. Uh, but were was was there something there with baseball too? Were you thinking like, hmm, maybe this could be a path for me, or was it just something that you you enjoyed doing? Yeah, believe it or not, I actually thought I was going to pitch for the Dodgers someday yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, I was a huge Dodger fan, and and as fate would have it. When I was 11 years old, the 1988 Dodgers were like the, the greatest Cinderella season, very inspiring. And I was just, you know, kind of reaching my peak of Little League at the time. And uh, Oral Hershiser was my hero. And we had that nice. big moment, you know, Kirk Gibson's big home run in the 88 World Series. and yeah. all that. So I was, you know, that was a great time to be a kid in L.A. sports fan. You know, we had the Lakers and the Dodgers were both champions, I think, that same year. Mm-hmm. Um, they did that again I, this or two last year, two years ago. Right, the first time since then. So That's we waited amazing. a long time. It's amazing. But yeah, uh, I was. I, yeah. Well, no, I was gonna, you're probably like, oh yeah, the dot. I mean, they they seem like a good team. I guess I could pitch for them when I when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, I it was it was definitely I, I was a good pitcher when I was 12. Um, we won the championship, and I was like, you know, the star pitcher. We went into like the regionals tournament of champions and all-stars and all that and i think for my age i was definitely at the top um of what you know you might expect in terms of the future the sky was the limit but that's probably true about a lot of kids all over the country that think they're gonna go straight to the big leagues you know yeah didn't really work out that way i play you know i played with five five guys on my year and then another guy that was a year younger than me all six of them got drafted uh, oh and never and one one guy made it and pitched like one game and that was it and the rest of the guys just i mean it's such a i think it's i think it's harder i think it's harder than music in in some regard um but the other the flip side of it is i i was just talking about this the other day that the thing that i dislike about music is that if you're a really great pitcher and you could throw 100 miles an hour you can go try out for a team and you'll get picked up you can't go try out for to be a professional musician somewhere and they're like oh yeah great you're on the team we'll right. slot, we'll slot you right in yeah that so. makes sense <laughs> yeah it, i guess we were pretty lucky you know that we found each other when we did um it, you don't you don't realize how good you have it until you get out there and you realize, gosh, you know, we were so blessed to meet each other when we did and to have a chemistry together. Like most people spend their whole lives searching for that opportunity or that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it never comes for some people. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a direct ratio between talent and success, you know, when it comes right. to uh, creativity and, and music in particular. But, we, you know, the four of us, the original guys in the band, it was uh, I get, you know, it feels like it must've just been fate or something that we found each other when we did, because we just, there was a synergy and, and, and there was a connection that went beyond our own individual, uh, talents, I think. How did you guys meet? Did you guys go to school together? Uh, yeah, we did. I actually knew Adam from before that though. Um, Adam was like a mutual family friend, Adam Levine, the Levines and, uh, and the Salzmans were, friends of uh, my family and we had a couple family trips and things together. So I knew Adam when we were little kids and he was a couple grades below me. So he was just kind of like an annoying little brother to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
he was very rambunctious and hyperactive and uh you know i of course being whatever 12 years old and he was 10 uh just thought he was you know so immature <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> as fate would have it we ended up at school together yeah and he i was i had been in bands already i was in the school band uh my older brother was kind of the the lead guitarist of, of the bands that i'd been in mm -hmm. um and and when he went off to college and the guys that I had been playing with um, were no longer around, I was looking for new musicians to play with. This is when I was like 16 now. And, uh, and Adam was there now. He was a freshman. And he had started a band uh, with a couple of his friends in middle school. I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, all I knew of him was that he played a little rhythm guitar. Um, I hadn't really seen him sing or anything, but I went to one show with his old band, uh, at the Troubadour one night, uh, Adam Salzman, again, the mutual friend, family friend, invited me. He was the singer in that band. And they played a whole set, and they were kind of still in that uh, hair band era. Mm -hmm. um, Adam Salzman kind of wanted to be a cross between, I think, Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth, David Lee Roth all rolled into one. <laughs> and so it was fun, but, you know, I was just kind of like you know, just watching. And then for the last song of that set, he calls Adam Levine, who for the most of the set was just strumming a rhythm guitar at the side of the stage. He calls him to the center of the stage, and he was probably 13, 14 at this point. Mm -hmm. And he goes up and sings the song Rockin' Robin. And within one verse and chorus, I was like, I want to start a band with him. And really? I was just like, he was very shy and he wasn't very polished, but he just like... I'm sure if you've been in bands, you know, like finding somebody who has a unique voice who can carry a tune yeah. in front of band, that's the hardest thing to find. You can find a lot of good guitar players out there and, and drummers that can bang it out. Uh, but if you don't have that, that voice that can carry, you know, the whole, the whole shebang, then, you know, you, you don't really have anything. So I was just like, I, I want to, I want to start a band and that's where I'm starting. And he had these two other guys, Jesse and Mickey, who were his, his best friends at that point. And so I was kind of trying to recruit him to start a band with me with some other guys. And he was trying to get me to join the band he was already in. And then I finally kind of hit it off with Jesse and Mickey. And that's when the band became uh, Cars Flowers originally and then Maroon 5 years later. Yeah, there was, I was reading about it that when you guys started Cars Flowers and you had gotten signed, though, right? And you put out a you put out what an EP and then and then what happened? It kind of. I mean, the band the band kept going, but you guys kind of reemerged as, as Maroon Five after that, right? Yeah, it was more than like an EP. It was it was a full on uh, major label contract and record uh, that that totally tanked. <laughs> that was oh, let, our... me, let me and I, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Let me rewind a little bit. How do you go from from finding or you know knowing Adam Levine? He's 13 or 14 years old. You guys start a band to not much longer, not much after signing a major label record deal. Yeah. Well, like I said, it really was kind of um, just this magic kind of chemistry, I think, that that kind of catapulted us forward together. We had this, this just a real connection between the four of us, and it didn't really matter that most of us were pretty inexperienced. Um, the, I mean, the other three guys, two of them had really just started playing, I think, within that year. But for whatever reason, we were just really on the same page. And so within like a year uh, of starting the band, we were already getting some interest from labels. Hmm. Um, and the first one was, a, was an indie label. 
it was just this felt like fate there was a guy just walking along the beach we were playing this this party out in malibu one night we had just recorded our first real demo in a in a studio like a proper studio um and and this guy was walking along the beach and heard us playing and came in we gave him the demo and next week he and his partner called us and wanted to make a record with us on their indie label we ended up making a record um in like sound city studios amazing um, yeah, it, it was like my senior year in high school. The other guys were in tenth grade, and it's uh, insane. We, they were going to put it out and just put out an indie record, but then it, it it went so well. Like the energy was so good in the studio. We were so naive that we weren't we weren't even nervous because we were just like, oh, this is fun, you know, <laughs> yeah. just excited to be there. But uh, it turned out well, so they they're like, let's shop this to major labels because it's good enough that we could maybe get a bumped up to another level. Um, that was probably a mistake on their part. Uh, I regret to say, because then major labels got involved and they wanted to just buy them out. So uh. when reprise Warner brothers got involved because we took on, it, it happened this way. We got, we got signed by uh, Bob Cavallo's management company. He was a big time manager uh, he had, you know, Alanis Morissette and uh, Seal and the Goo Goo Dolls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, and he introduced us to Rob Cavallo, who had just had a huge hit with Green Day at Reprise. So uh, that was it. We were we were just, you know, enamored with that idea of Rob <laughs> producing the record. And of course. So they bought out, you know, these indie guys. And I, I still don't feel good about that. I mean, I. These were incredible, lovely guys who really took us under their wing and gave us our first sort of foray into the music business and were really warm and supportive. And, and then we kind of got swept up into the whole, um, you know, the big time industry. Mm -hmm. um, and it was in that era still in the 90s when the, before the advent of, you know, uh, downloading music and all that, where they would sign 10 acts a year and throw a million dollars at each act and like nine of them would tank and they drop yeah. them. Yep. And yep. then, so that we were, we were a casualty of that old era where we were one of those bands. They said, you're going to be the next Beatles, you know, and they <laughs> spent a bunch of money on our record and a video. And within six months, we were done. Like the, they pulled the plug on it. The record yeah. was tanked and it was done. I mean, but in, I mean, in some respect though, they were right though. I mean, you guys, you guys blew up and, became maybe not from that record but like maybe they they saw something that you guys didn't because then when you guys came back as room five you guys were massive still massive. yeah <laughs> i think there's something to be said yeah i think maybe they just they were seeing the potential in what we would be you know five years from then mm -hmm. uh we we were a little young and green uh you know at that point to be able to deliver hits and and to be able to step up to the next level uh it took another you know we were kids we were teenagers still so it took a, yeah. another few years to develop our sound and to become a little more professional and able to to you know be on that big stage yeah so at that time and once once the the record labels got involved were you guys still doing you you guys were just writing everything internally or did you start working with songwriters outside of outside of the core group Oh, everything was internal the entire time that I was in the band. We we, yeah. we wrote everything. 
uh, we were a self-contained unit. I'm sure that a lot of people might be surprised to hear that, but we were, I mean, the songs, everything from the progression, melody, lyrics, arrangement, everything was within the band. Um, and it was very collaborative in those days too. I mean, it, certainly Adam um, and Jesse emerged as a songwriting team at a certain mm -hmm. point um, because Jesse was the most sort of um, ambitious in terms of his understanding of music and being more creative in terms of uh, harmonic movement and things like that. Um, he was listening to a lot of jazz and classical and becoming, he was a Beatles freak too. We all were Beatles freaks. So just like, mm -hmm. you know, classic songwriting. And then Adam just has, he's kind of a savant. He just has this innate knack for melody. Um, so he could hear one of those progressions and just come up with a good melody. Um, it took a while for him to develop his voice as a lyricist. Uh, at first it was kind of nonsense. <laughs> the lyrics he was writing, uh, but it was the 90s, so you can't really blame him. You know, I mean, lyrics were kind of <laughs> right. nonsense. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's a valid point. It's a valid point. It's such, I, I mean, I remember when you guys, um, when you guys were coming up and or right when you hit the scene with, um, with songs about Jane, like my band, we were, I guess we were a couple years, a couple years behind you guys. And, and here's what happens. Like, you know, you hear a band that comes out and then like all the other bands kind of like hate on this band. Right. And so, and I was, I, I loved that record. And there was a couple guys in my, in my band that were like, ah, oh, we don't like it. And it turns out that it was just like, it was jealousy, you know, cause this, this record was doing really well. But the thing that, that I really, that really made me respect you guys so much more was the fact that you guys have been doing it for so long. That I was like, look, this isn't some band that just got like cherry picked out of a out of a group of people. I'm like this. By the time that record came out, you guys have been playing for, what, 10 years or something like that? Yeah, it was, you know, an overnight success that took a decade, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> and not only was that our, was that album and, and our second record deal, um, you know, that long into our career already. But we were on the road promoting that album for two years before it became a, a big hit. Mm -hmm. So we really paid our dues. Thankfully, we had a, a label at that point, a smaller label that was uh, dedicated to breaking the, the record um, the old-fashioned way, you know, grassroots kind of development. And so we went out there and we toured for six months before the record even came out. Mm -hmm. um, they released the first single and they were really... It was really, I think, shrewd marketing in terms of choosing Harder to Breathe to be the first single because it was the most sort of uh, rock, edgier sounding track that was a crossover kind of potential, but not, you know, not a slam dunk pop hit. Mm -hmm. um, and they did that because they knew that we were more than just a, a fluff pop band and they wanted radio to know that and to see that. And so we promoted that single for like a year, like and, and it took that long for it to reach a moderate hit at radio. Um, and it was, we were a year and a half into touring on that record when we did our first club uh, headlining tour. And we had, you know, like a gold record at that point and a moderate hit with harder to breathe. And then two years in is when we released this love um, internationally and started going overseas touring. And that's when it kind of stepped up to a, an exponentially, bigger level mm -hmm. um in terms of marketing and everything 
Um, so it was definitely not the kind of thing, as you say, that it was cherry picked and, oh, here's a, here's a band that looks the part and here's a song we can have a hit with. It was, it was definitely the old fashioned way. When you were saying you were touring prior to the record coming out, this is, I mean, that's one thing to note too, like how times have changed, right? Before you put out a record, you either, you start touring beforehand, you start playing the tunes on tour, the record comes out, then you go and support or go out and, and, and promote that record for the next two years on the road and now it's the opposite right you put out a song and then and you get all the song out uh on the internet and then you go around and tour afterwards and it doesn't really it doesn't promote the music um but when you guys were touring beforehand what size what size rooms were you playing then well it 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 was really it was kind of cool because each tour and each time we went around the country it was just a little bit bigger than the previous time. It started out um, in 2002, like January, February 2002. We went out on the first opening tour for Michelle Branch. Um, and that was, she had a moderate, actually, she had a pretty big hit right at that moment, her first big hit. And so she was selling out, but it was like clubs. It was maybe 500 seat or general admission clubs. Mm-hmm. Um but they were packed. So it was a great way to introduce us to new audiences. Um, but it was small, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the big theaters or the, you know, arenas that it became later. Um, and then after that, it was Nika Costa was the next tour we did, mm-hmm. which was really cool because that was a much more sort of diverse crowd and really uh, I think more consistent with the kind of music we were playing in terms of a more of a soul and R and D feel to it. Um, so it was kind of that kind of thing where we were playing clubs, um, and then all of a sudden we're playing kind of small theaters, uh, with Nika Costa at a certain point. Um, by the end of that first year, we opened for John Mayer a couple of dates, uh, in the fall, I think of 2002. And that was the first time that we played some really big rooms, mm-hmm. uh, like, like college arenas. And that was a big step up. Um, and then in the following year, we were opening for Matchbox 20 and we at, at Counting Crows and a couple other acts that we um, were doing actual arenas at that point. But that was a year, a year and a half into touring. All of the first year was gradually building up to that. Yeah. So as you as you start getting notoriety, you start getting money, you start playing bigger venues now. I, I, and I've grown a band from nothing to something, but never, never to that stratospheric level like you guys got. What does that do to your psyche when you start, when you start getting bigger and bigger? And now it doesn't, now you're, you're starting to become famous and now you're starting to become a rock star and, and all of the, the trappings that go along with that. How, what does that do to your psyche? Well, I can only speak for myself. Obviously, I'm sure it's different for different people. Um, but for me, it was definitely, it, it messed with my head in, in some very specific ways. Um, I was very excited, obviously, for the success that we were having. But I was also somebody who was an anxious person by nature, um, perfectionistic, uh, put a lot of pressure on myself. And I had never really experienced stage fright or anything like that but i was i was always pretty um amped up about performing and and as it became bigger and bigger 
and the stages got bigger and we're doing things like performing on live television on SNL for millions of people and just, you know, expectation after expectation to perform to a certain level, the pressure definitely was getting to me um, in terms of being excited to do this stuff, wanting to do it, but also just uh, it taking a real toll on um, my constitution. And then you're traveling that much. And I think also what wore on me was there's not a lot of downtime when you're in the middle of that storm. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of an introvert and I need a little bit of space to myself, which you don't really have when you're on a tour bus with, you know, 10 other people. Um, and, and then you have to kind of wake up and, you know, brush your teeth if you can. And then you usually have like a meet and greet or an interview or a photo shoot or, you know, something that you have to be on for and be your most dynamic self right. in every context. And I found that to be exhausting and kind of contrary to just the natural sort of flow of life, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So that was hard. I, I never really experienced, you know, obviously the same kind of fame that a lead singer like Adam does. A lot of the focus ends up going, you know, to him. And I think that's a common tale where the band kind of falls into the background a little bit behind the, the front person. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did experience that with him to a certain extent where, uh, I, you know, you see the paparazzi and you see that, that life emerging where, your world is actually getting smaller and smaller as the fame is getting bigger and bigger. And I, that never really appealed to me. I never really was wanting that kind of fame. I, I wanted to be able to do what we did, which was make music and be creative mm -hmm. on a big stage with a lot of people hopefully appreciating it. But, but that kind of fame was not something that appealed to me. Yeah. It's time to design your dream kit. You have a sound and look in your mind's eye, and it's time to make that dream a reality. Your sound emerges from the choicest materials and is constructed using the exclusive Sonar Optimum shell measurement construction, utilizing slightly undersized shell diameters, allowing the drum head the space to float freely with unrestricted bearing edge contact. Your look emerges through the ultimate selection of veneers, hand-polished lacquers, and premium coverings to create the stunning look of your dreams. Design yours today at sq2-drumsystem.com. DB1 drumheads and cymbals allow all drummers to hit hard in the middle of the night without a single noise complaint. DB1 drum heads and cymbals provide the natural tone and genuine feel of an acoustic kit, but only produce 20% of the volume of acoustic heads. These are Evan's first drum and cymbals to include proprietary technology that allows for unmistakable and authentic feel, crack, and buzz in an acoustic kit at one-fifth the noise level. Drummers, your neighbors can sleep, your midnight jam sessions can continue, all thanks to Evan's, the most technologically advanced drum heads on earth. I think we all want sort of the recognition from our peers and, but, but fame, I mean, a, a buddy of mine, his, his brother is, is uber famous, kind of like Adam Levine. Right. And he's like, we go on vacation 
and he sits in his hotel room the whole time because if he comes out, then it's it's a, you know like he gets smothered. So that that's no way of living of of not being able to go out in public or not doing. I think about it like being someone like a Justin Bieber or something like that. It's like yeah, like you said, your world gets your world gets so much smaller and and you can't go anywhere you can't do anything without people constantly hounding you yeah you think you know when you have that kind of success the world really opens up to you and in some ways it does obviously you have a lot of opportunities that most people don't have Mm -hmm. uh, and you get to do a lot of fabulous things with fabulous people but at the same time um it's it can be very isolating i think yeah yeah for sure um so and and you I've been reading through your book um haven't finished it yet but it's a, it's a great read and I've been kind of I'm a slow reader so I I just skim through a lot of it uh but I'm looking forward to actually sitting down and and going through all this and you've been you've been very open about um about addiction and and recovery where did where did it start for you was it was it during those times when you were on the road that that you started to feel sort of isolated or you started to feel like you needed a little bit of space or was it, or was it afterwards when, when you left the band because of an injury, where did, where was that starting for you? Well, it, it's hard to say exactly when it started. The, the addiction, the alcoholism um, became a problem after I wasn't performing anymore. I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I was drinking and it was something I can look at the, the sort of sources of the issue as earlier on uh, before it became a, a real problem. Um, it wasn't in the touring days that it was a, a real problem yet, uh, but definitely, I mean, I started drinking in my twenties and at the, at that time it was just fun. You know, it was just uh, being a young man going out with friends and mm-hmm. it was just something to facilitate uh, a good time um, on the road. I think probably for the first time it would become a form of escape sometimes uh, when, when I knew we had a day off or um, you know, a night off or whatever, just being able to kind of like let loose and um, forget the level of pressure and anxiety that I was under on a daily basis. There was definitely more of that escapism and, and coping, but it wasn't the kind of thing. I don't remember going on stage drunk or hungover very much right. at all. Uh, so it, that wasn't the major issue. But when I when my body was kind of giving out on me and my mind on tour and and I had to step away from the drums, that was just really devastating. I was I was the most depressed at that point than I've ever been in my life. Um, and I really did feel very isolated, um, literally from the band, because, you know, the, we got to this place that we'd been working towards for a, a decade. And then all of a sudden I'm kind of just on the sidelines trying to heal while they're in the middle of, um, you know, massive tours. And so I felt very disconnected. Um, I I was losing kind of, I think a sense of my, my own identity and who I was and what, what my self-definition was Mm -hmm. my whole world and and circle of friends felt, felt uh, distant from me. So that's when the drinking kind of started to ramp up for me and it became, not just an escape, but just like a, um, a coping mechanism, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when I left the band officially, I just kind of crawled into a bottle for a while. Um, and because it was just so devastating, I just, I didn't really know what else to do with myself. It was the numbing out was really the only uh, solution that I could come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I felt like I got it under control after a year or so and tried to move on with my life. 
but I kind of just settled in as alcoholics do to a more sort of habitual lifestyle of drinking that uh, in my mind, I felt like I had control over. But as I as I learned in time, that was an illusion, you know, yeah. having control over it. Uh, and it mm -hmm. took it, it took some years of really being humbled in a lot of ways by um, by my drinking and, and my world just getting smaller and smaller, smaller to realize that um, I needed to go the other direction. And um, and that's when everything changed for me. Yeah, I I remember when you left the band and. I, I've, I've said, I, I don't know if I said it specifically, but I mean, I've been a fan of Maroon 5 since you guys came out, right? And I've seen you guys live, you know, had seen you guys live numerous times. Uh, and I remember when you left the band and hearing why you left. Mm -hmm. And as, as corny and as cheesy as this sounds, I was devastated for you because oh. I, was, I was just thinking like, I, I was in a band. We'd been together for, you know, 10 years. We were, we were, really like heading upwards we were selling out bigger and bigger clubs and i was like i know what this feels like to to and to get to where you guys have gotten and i don't mean to to reopen old wounds here uh but i just remember being like i don't know how i would i would handle that and i was like i i felt horrible for you and i never i didn't know you as a person you know uh but but dealing with that i i can see how that can lead to crawling into a bottle to use to use your expression um let's i want to talk a little bit about about why you left because it, i think it's one thing if you didn't get along with the guys in the band and they kicked you out or something right and you're like you know what fuck those guys i never want to be i never want to see them again and i i almost think that would be easier than just not being able to go on anymore so can you can you and, and if you're okay with talking about it, i'd like to talk just a little bit about the injury and and why you actually left yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm okay talking about it. You know, I wrote a book about about it, that <laughs> right. whole experience. And uh, it's, you know, telling my story about this, that the, the whole purpose of writing the book, Harder to Breathe, uh, it, is that hopefully somebody can relate to it and it can help someone who's going through some of the same things. I mean, obviously not specifically the same thing of leaving Maroon 5, but, <laughs> but you know, just the, the pain of loss, the pain of, of uh, depression and anxiety and or alcoholism. Um, I'm telling my story to people because I want to be helpful to people that might be going through a hard time. So, yes, um, you know, you're absolutely right that um, if, if it had been just, you know, a typical breakup of a band and it was it was, you know, I hate those guys and I don't I, you know, I don't want to be in a band with them anyway. It almost would have been easier, you know, mm -hmm. but it wasn't that at all. It was we were brothers and we loved each other and we had a connection that was really deep and none of us wanted that to end we all were dreaming about uh the four and then five of us having a long career together and continuing to be you know just creative partners and brothers uh, but it was this breakdown that i had that just didn't allow it just made that impossible mm -hmm. um, and it was something that it didn't happen one day it didn't happen overnight <clears throat> it happened over a long stretch of time over a matter of years really and I, it, and it wasn't even something that I understood at that time what was happening exactly. Um, it, it, it was only in retrospect in, in my healing process that I've been able to look back and take some meaning from it and understand what happened and learn from it um, because it was a physical thing. I mean, I, I had a, a, my body broke down in ways that I wasn't able to perform anymore, but 
I think I knew on some level that it was more than that. I knew that it was psychological, that it was spiritual, uh, that it was really a, a, a breakdown that was mind, body, and spirit um, that occurred over a long period of time. Um, I just, I, I couldn't even conceptualize what that was at the time. And um, what happened was I, I had had a, a, an injury to my right arm, my, my pitching arm as a, as a baseball player um, in high school. And that was what kind of ended my, my career as a, as a budding young uh, Dodger. <laughs> and, um, and it, you know, it was weird. That injury never really bothered me when I was playing the drums for a long time. I never really thought about it. I knew I still had this kind of chronic nagging uh, tendonitis in my shoulder. But when I was rocking out, it, it didn't even really cross my mind mm -hmm. um, until we were on tour. And we were in the middle of that uh, pressure of performing on a nightly basis. Um, strangely enough, even as far back as 97, when we toured for the first time on the Cars Flowers album, I would notice that for some reason over the stretch of a tour, whereas the band was getting tighter and as bands do when they're touring, you know, they go around, they come home and everyone says, oh my God, you guys have gotten so tight. I mean, that was definitely the case, but I personally felt like it was getting harder for me to perform. Like I, I was having to try harder, focus harder, and I felt my body just more tense. And, I, and strangely enough, I felt like I was getting out of practice when I was on the road. And looking back on it now, I understand it is that you know, just the tension in my body and the level of pressure that I put on myself, the perfectionism, I, w I was just becoming more and more inside my head and more sort of focused on the minutia of it uh, rather than just having fun and the feeling of connecting with the rest of the band and the audience. And so it was, I was physically becoming more constrained, but also just psychologically becoming uh, much more narrow in my focus. Uh, it, it didn't come to a head in those years until, you know, when we were back on the road for a few years in a, in a right in a row without any breaks on songs about Jane. Um, it was the kind of thing where I had, I'd geared myself up. I knew we were going to be on the road for at least a year, if not a couple of years. And I was ready for it. I was going to take a good attitude and be just ready for whatever came. And that worked for like a year and a half. Um, and that's and and that's such a long time to be on the road like for people who haven't been on the road for the stretches of time a year and a half on the road is like a decade yeah it's a long time yeah i mean when you look at that campaign just 2002 and 2003 before the the album really blew up we played over 500 dates in those two years that's just concerts and then you add into that like the in-store acoustic performances, the in uh, the radio, radio station yeah. and, and meet and greets and photo shoots and video shoots. I mean, we didn't have more than a day or two off at a time for three years, really. And during that time, um, every time we had like a break scheduled, it was like, oh, okay, September, we've got two weeks off. We're going to go home. We're going to rest. It's, we're going to be rejuvenated. Then it would be like, oh, uh, by the way, the, the record's coming out now in uh, Australia. So we got to go to Australia for a week. And then when you get back, we got to shoot the new video and we got to do promo for this or that. And so the two weeks would just completely evaporate. And it mm. was one of those times when, when one of those breaks disappeared that I really, I remember hitting a wall where 
my whole just sort of constitution just sort of started caving in and I felt like I'm going down. Like there's no way I can maintain this. My body was, was just kind of imploding. Um, and I, my spirit was just kind of, um, breaking down. And so it started out with this physical pain and that was making it harder to play, but then it became, um, coordination issues. Hmm. It became like just playing simple patterns and beats and things became harder and it and it progressively harder until it was like, what is going on? My body just feels like uh, a foreign machine that I can't, I don't have the instructions for. Wow. Wow. I, I that's, I mean, the physical, I'm sure that there's physical pain. What, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll rephrase this. What was worse, the physical pain or the emotional pain? Absolutely. The emotional pain. Uh, you know, I, I definitely lived with chronic pain physically for a few years there. Thankfully, I'd never uh, got into opioids or anything like that to cope with the pain. Um, but but it was the emotional pain uh, that was it, because I couldn't even understand it at the time. I just felt this deep down feeling that I was a failure um, that I was broken in some way, that there was something defective about me beyond just a joint or, you know, one uh, limb, mm -hmm. just something that to my core was defective. And I had no real understanding other than like, here I am at the place I've, I've wanted to be. I've been working towards for a decade it, with a dream situation with my brothers and we're reaching the mountaintop and I can't hack it, you know? So right. I, I just felt like, absolutely devastated like i didn't even know who i was at my core at that point that's i i, I can't even imagine i can't even imagine what that's like so now you're 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 there like you said you've reached the mountaintop you can't do it anymore and then you're like you just go to the guys and you're like look i'm i'm done i can't i can't do it like what is that what was that conversation like no it wasn't my choice I'd like to say it was my choice, but I, I, I wasn't capable of making that choice for myself. Although my body, I think, understanding it better now, my body was making that choice for me. Right. Right. I don't know if you've ever heard the term focal dystonia. Um, mm, I have heard that. Yeah. I don't know what it means, but I've heard it before. I'm just learning about it now. After all these years, I think I finally found a proper diagnosis for what happened to me on some level. I mean, really what it was, it was trauma complex trauma over time that led to my body and mind breaking down. Um, but specifically in terms of how it affected my first, my right arm and then my whole body really was this thing called focal dystonia, which in, in sports, they call it the yips, mm -hmm. um, which people think of as performance anxiety, which is a part of it. Uh, but in musicians have musicians dystonia. And what it is, is you do something so many times your body starts to perceive it as, um, dangerous like you keep doing this you're gonna you're gonna die because it's like um you're putting so much stress on your body um re repeating the same motions over and over and over again that your body finally just says no nope, not gonna do that anymore and it starts just kind of freaking out and doing weird motions and you can't control the coordination of it anymore uh golfers talk about it with putting like all of a sudden like they can't just do that simple little wrist movement of a smooth putt they start getting a weird twitch in their putt and they hmm. can't control the ball anymore baseball players get it with throwing or pitching sometimes all of a sudden just a simple throw 
from second base to first ends up going into the dugout over and over and over again. Right. And then there's the and, mental thing that I'm sure ties into that too, where they're saying, okay, now I'm going to throw this thing into the dugout and whether, whether it's the focal dystonia or it's their just some sort of mental thing. Now they're throwing it in the dugout all the time. Right. You have like, you be, you have like a complex now. It's like a, a mental block, mm-hmm. a yeah. mental and a physical block is really what it is. So, so that's what my was really happening. I think was my body was kind of, making that decision for me it was like okay you're done you can't keep doing this anymore it's killing you um but i would have kept playing until my arms fell off i was just like (laughs) i had tunnel vision i was like there's no way i'm i'm quitting um but we had it started uh i think we were headlining and we were in florida i went to a doctor and they gave me a shot of cortisone in my right shoulder uh, I tried to play that night and it was worse. Like it was just really uncoordinated. And the band had a meeting with me afterwards and they're like, you need to go home, um, figure out what's going on and rest up and come back. And we brought a friend out to fill in for me for a bit. I did that and I was able to come back, <laughs> I think a week or two later and, and finish out the tour that time. But I, I was like contorting my mechanics a lot and everything was um you know, just finding ways to get through the set, mm-hmm. um, but really probably doing more damage, definitely doing more damage because my, my mechanics were already not, you know, they're already flawed. And then I was playing through the pain and, and trying to find ways to do it that were not uh, very mechanically sound. So then in the following year, when it came back, you know, to haunt me again, uh, and it just continued to get worse, the band was like, you know what, you need to take an indefinite break figure out what's going on, whatever it is. Cause we didn't know what was going on. Right. Go to every kind of doctor you can and figure out what it is. We'll be here when you get back. I mean, they were really, really supportive and great uh, at the time. Like they were like, if it takes six months, if it takes a year, like just do what you got to do. And so I tried to do that. And I, and it was a year. I mean, I was like, I went to every kind of doctor and got every kind of diagnosis and every kind of injection and medicine Jeez. and physical therapy and acupuncture and, Nothing really just seemed to to work. Actually, during that time, everything seemed to get worse, actually. And so when it came time, the touring cycle was over and it was time to start focusing on a new album. Um, and we got into a rehearsal space and started writing and stuff. Um, it was clear to everyone that this was not going to work. And, and they had a meeting with me. And, and Adam, the way Adam put it was like, um, you know, even if you can get through the record, even if you're able to play well enough to record this album, um, I'm really worried that we're going to get out on the road. We're going to have a world tour booked. Um, and the same thing's going to happen because we, there's no reason to believe it's not. Right. And, and, and we're, and then we're going to have to cancel a tour or, you know, Matt who had been filling in for me at that point is going to have moved on to another gig and he's not going to be available. And so it was not my choice. It was, it's time to move on. Uh, And in some ways in that moment, it was obviously it was heartbreaking. It was something I knew was coming. You know, it was like, it wasn't a surprise to me. So in some ways it was almost like a relief because, because I'd been trying so hard to figure out some way to overcome this. And now I actually could, stop chasing my tail so so hard the way i had been for a year and a half um but 
but it led into the darkest time in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see how that would happen. Mm-hmm. And so now you're not in the band. Uh, you're, you're drinking, you feel like you have control over it. What was the, what was the breaking point where you were thinking, okay, maybe I don't have control over this and, and I'd really need to, to make, make, uh, make some changes, go through rehab, go through recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the, you know, the main symptoms of being in a, in a, a cycle of addiction is just a lack of self-awareness. You know, you, you're, there's a lot of denial and rationalization and uh, just thinking, Oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty healthy. I'm, I, you know, I, on the surface, I could show up to things and, and look like I was, I was happy. And, um, but I had no real direction in life at that point. I had no real purpose or um, just connection to the world around me. My, my world was getting uh, more and more ruled by, by my addiction and my anxiety that went along with it. And I think what, what it was, people talk about, a, you know, hitting a, a bottom. Um, I, I was very fortunate to not have to hit the kind of bottom that a lot of people do in terms of like losing everything or, you know, going to prison or your family turning their back on you or those kind of really tragic things that addiction can lead to. It was, for me, it was more a spiritual bottom. It was mm-hmm. just realizing, you know, I'm just exhausted of living this way of hiding so much from everyone of, of being just anxious and terrified on a daily basis and feeling like I don't have any real purpose and and just feeling sick and tired, you know, the, the, it's cliche, but being sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And mm-hmm. um, and I just it was fortunate enough to have one of those moments of, of clarity, you know, where it was like, I can keep living this way and it'll probably just keep getting worse until I die. Or I can pick myself up and I can start moving in the opposite direction and see where, where, where that takes me. And I was really lucky to have some help when I needed it. Um, and pretty early on in recovery, after I got past some initial withdrawals and stuff, I started to discover that there was life outside of this little tiny little world that I'd been living in and that there was connection and there was, there was purpose and there were meaningful experiences that I had yet to have. And that also that I had talents and things that I had been neglecting that I I'd had forgotten were passions of mine. I'd forgotten that I loved writing. I'd forgotten that I was creative in ways beyond just being the drummer in Maroon 5. Mm-hmm. And, and that I had a brain that was capable of more than just passing out on the couch every night. You know? <laughs> so it was like, it was eye-opening within a matter of weeks and months, just feeling like awakened to life again. People talk about a, a spiritual awakening, and I never really identified with that idea of spirituality before but it was just very simple it was like my world was very small when i was drinking and i was starting to feel connected to the world and and life around me again and that felt good and that's what it was just Mm -hmm. that thing was there was there this idea of maybe of trying to get heavily involved in music again or were you thinking no i want to go a total opposite direction i don't know if i want to go down that road again because I mean, I'm really, looking, I'm looking behind you, and you know, you have, <laughs> you're, you're obviously uh, still playing, and and uh, it looks like you're, you're probably practicing and and uh, involved in music on some level. Yeah, I, you know, I really didn't know I, I, where I was gonna go at that point exactly. The irony of it was, 
I bought this house out in the San Fernando Valley um, in 2013. And the intention at that time was to live a, a healthier life. I, I had my first inklings of wanting to be healthier. I wasn't ready yet to get clean, but I, I wanted to have, I don't know, I imagined living out in the valley and having a little more space and a little more sunlight uh, and a, a more open feeling uh, property that that, that was going to lend itself to healthy living. It didn't work out that way at first. And I, I tried building this studio that I wanted to build. And it took three years before I could get the project off the ground. And during that time, my drinking and my lifestyle got worse. But the week that I checked myself into rehab was the week that we broke ground on this room that I'm in now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And, and I remember people asking me, you know, what's going on back home for you? And I was like, well, I'm building a studio. And they're like, oh, cool. Uh, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I'd, been, I'd done some producing and I'd done some writing and stuff. And I was like, I'd like to produce more records. I don't know. I could start a label. I could rent it out and just run a, a little studio. Mm -hmm. I don't. I didn't really know what direction I was going to go. I, I just was open to whatever the possibilities would be. Um, and I got out of rehab and I came home and this studio was finished. And so I stepped into this room for the first time and I, I've never had a drink or a drug in this room. Like <laughs> this is a safe, sober space for me. That's and awesome. it was... It just became a like a, a an office and a studio and a and a just a man cave to just kind of explore my passions again and just kind of have some fun and and find my creativity and and it was um, during the first couple of years of of sobriety that I started volunteering at a recovery center uh, with people that were just starting the process of getting sober and realized that I had a passion for psychology and for being of service to people that were still struggling mm -hmm. um, and found this new passion that I, I decided I wanted to help people and went back to school to get a master's in clinical psychology and become a therapist. So I did all of that in here. You know, I, at this desk, I was um, studying and uh, I started seeing clients on Zoom during the pandemic. That's awesome. And I wrote a book at the same time, starting during the pandemic and uh, and so that's, it's all happened in this room and it's, it's all wrapped together. I, I look at myself, I guess, as kind of a, um, a jack of all trades, a master of none, you know, <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of music, a little bit of writing, a little bit of, uh, uh, being hopefully of service to other people in a helpful way and, and just doing things that feel purposeful and meaningful to me. That's amazing. What do you think is the biggest thing that, that people get wrong or the biggest mistakes people make when they either they have an, a problem or they are are trying to get clean uh, and because there's so many pitfalls and like you said you you know we lie to ourselves and mm -hmm. uh, what what do you what do you think are the biggest mistakes that people make? Well, you know, I think a big thing for addicts of any kind um, is is always thinking that there's some way that they can control it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I refer to it in the book. I have a chapter called the illusion of control, which is a phrase that a lot of people will use to refer to the very thing that I'm talking about. Uh, every alcoholic that's gotten sober can relate to a time when they were like, oh, I figured out how I've got it under control now. I'll only drink on the weekends or <laughs> I'll only drink after five o'clock or I'll only drink uh, beer and wine and not hard liquor. Um, 
and it's like those are great intentions and with a lot of willpower you think that's that's how you're going to maintain a healthy lifestyle but it's uh it always ends up back in the same place um you're really only fooling yourself because inherently you're taking this substance that removes the ability to have executive functioning right (laughs) right it's like it goes right to the part of the brain that is the uh, moderation part, you know. <laughs> so yeah. you might have that best intention at nine o'clock in the morning on a Monday, but come Friday at five o'clock after you have two, you know, drinks in you, and that go, all goes out the window, and you're back in the same place. So this this illusion that you have control over this beast is something that people will will keep, will keep people in their addiction for years. And it's like, oh, this time it didn't work. Maybe it's because I'm in the wrong city. Maybe if I move to the, the Midwest, that's where I'll be a healthy drinker. You yeah. know? <laughs> some, yep. some fallacy of this is, this is the thing I haven't tried yet. And, and we love to go out and try to find more evidence uh, to the contrary that we're not addicts. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's like a that's a compulsive loop, right? It could be anything, whether it be drinking or getting healthy or or doing something different, where we just live in this in this sort of this turmoil, and then that becomes the comfort zone. And and pro- I'm guessing the reason why we don't we don't get out of it we don't get out of addiction one because it's an addiction. The other side of it is like, well, that's that's scary to come out of that because it's hard. And and I live in this comfort zone of telling myself I'm not going to do it. Then I do it. Then I beat myself up over it. Then I make a new plan and then I do it again. And then it's just this vicious cycle. Very well put. Yeah. That's, that's a a weird kind of paradox. And it's not just for addicts. It's for everyone who, um, you know, has any kind of mental health or lifestyle issue that they want to change. For some reason, we, we, we find comfort in in the the misery that's, that's familiar to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And the idea of changing is the scariest thing because that means going out into the unknown. And it could be it, that what's going to come is going to be even worse than what I'm familiar with, right? Yeah. We, we kind of we, we cling to the thing that we know because it's familiar and, and there's a strange comfort, even if it's miserable. And in order to get out of that, it requires change. It requires growth and being open to the idea that there's another way. Getting out of our own way, really, is all that it is, and being open to the idea that there is another way, which is really hard for all of us to do. We all have our mm-hmm. patterns, the ways that we go through life, trying to just do the best we can and cope. And sometimes they're healthy. Sometimes they're habits that were ingrained that are, um, you know, positive aspects of our of our lifestyle or our nature. But sometimes they they didn't come from anywhere healthy, and we're just we're just trapped in them because. Uh, we've been married to them for so long that we don't know any other way. And we just get in our own way. Um, w- whereas we could easily just kind of get out of our own way and allow um, ourselves to grow and change. And that will inevitably lead to a better way of living. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you recommend that people start that? that I think that's the hardest part. It is. Uh, I think humility, you know, acceptance and humility. There's a reason why, acceptance is the first step and the 12 steps and not that not that the 12 steps is the answer for everyone for everything but um, just as a model there's a reason why acceptance is step one is because it's so hard to do anything else until you really accepted the nature of what it is that's challenging you mm-hmm. and that you've become you've realized you realize that your life has become unmanageable and and that you, you gotta you gotta be open to a new way um having that humility um 
we have so much pride and that's what leads to the things like denial and rationalization and and just like pushing things out of our mind and, and thinking oh that's somebody else's problem that's not my problem yeah because we don't want to admit you know the ways in which we're fallible or the things that you know be open to the things that are scary um so like really allowing ourselves to be humbled in that way to find that humility that you know what i don't have the answers and that's okay it's okay that i wasn't given the answers or that i don't have them it doesn't mean that i can't gain them um it just means that i need to be open and accept where i'm at i'm exactly where i need to be today mm -hmm. and and as long as i'm open to learning and open to change i'll be exactly where i need to be tomorrow and the day after that and it's a process Mm -hmm. Yep. That's very well put. Very well put. Um, I, I think that the heart, and I've experienced this even with myself, just that admitting, admitting that something is going on, right? Whether I'm not specifically for me, I'm not talking about addiction, but just like patterns that I have that, that I'm trying to get out of. Uh, and, and the hardest thing is to say, you know what, maybe this is an issue. You know, like maybe, maybe I do need to get out of this pattern. And then the second thing is maybe I can find someone to help me get out of this pattern and, and not just think that it's going to be different this time. And I'm going to put all this willpower into it because willpower doesn't, it doesn't last and it really doesn't work unless you have systems in place to, to help or people to help you develop those systems. Well, yeah, that's the second uh, really important part of the answer to your question is, you know, being open to getting help, asking for help. That's another thing that's really hard for us to do. You know, we, we, uh, we want to believe that we can just uh, tough it out, that we have the willpower or the strength to get through something. And it's like, we all need a little bit of help at certain points in our lives. There's a reason why we have support systems, why we have people we can lean on. And sometimes our support systems are great. Sometimes they're not. Uh, and sometimes they're great, but they just don't have the resources to give us the help that we need. And we need professional help or we need somebody who has experience with specifically what is challenging us at that moment. And so, you know, seeking out a therapist, seeking out um, some kind of facility that's uh, going to be helpful for you or, you know, a sponsor or whatever it may be that's specific to what you need. Um, asking for help is, <laughs> you know, again, I know it sounds cliche, but that's the most courageous thing that you can do at a certain point, much more so than just trying to tough it out and overcome it on your own. Yeah, because I would, I would argue that most people can't. Most people can't tough it out and, and figure it out on their own if it's, if it's something that's, that really needs to be addressed. Very true. Um, I'm looking through this. I'm looking through this book, and I just wanted to call it out. So, you, so you, the book that we're talking about is is um, harder to breathe. It's a memoir of, of making Maroon Five, losing it all, and finding recovery. And I told you I've, I'm a slow reader. I've been skimming through it, uh, but looking forward to actually sit down and reading it all. But one of the 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 uh, the contents or the names of the chapters, some of them are. I was like. I like I like this. So I just wanted to call out a couple of them. Smells like Teen Spirit. I thought it was great. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. And I was like, okay. I, I didn't. I didn't even. I haven't. I haven't gotten into that chapter yet. But I was like, I love Rage Against the Machine. So I thought that was great. Uh, what a maroon. I thought was pretty funny. Uh, and and then the illusion of control, which is is something that you talked about before. Um, but this but this memoir runs through runs the gamut of of you you know, a young kid meeting Adam, meeting the rest of the guys starting Moon five and all the way to where you are now. Right. So now you're, you're seeing clients, 
uh you went back to get your master's degree and i mean to me i'm like you've lived so many lives and you're still a young guy you know and and there's so much more out there for you for you to do uh but i think that it's commendable what you have done and how you've turned all of this around because i i don't know how i would have been able to handle it myself uh so not that these not that these words uh you know not that you're looking for my approval but uh but the way that you've turned this around is is remarkable man i i really it's really impressive thank you man i really appreciate that it it does feel like I've lived uh, a few lifetimes at this point, but I do feel like uh, I'm still young and, and, and excited about life and what's going to come from here. And, and I, you know, it means a lot for you to say that, I, I think, because for the first time in a long time in the last five, six years, um, I feel proud of myself. You know, <laughs> it feels yeah. good to be me and to and to have embraced some new passions and to find new purpose. And I, I just want, you know, people that are, that are struggling the way that I did uh, to feel what that feels like, to have that, to come to that place where you realize how much value you have as a person and that your life still has um, such great opportunity ahead, even if you've really struggled in the past um, and present. And so, you know, anytime in the past that, you know, I, I, I would, hesitate to take any real compliments or or harp on the things that i'd done in the past because i felt so undeserving of it but now i'm like yeah give me the praise (laughs) it feels good it feels good at this point in my life to to look back and say like you know having been through all that and where i'm at now i want to celebrate um the opportunities and and the you know the positivity that i'm i've embraced in my life at this Mm -hmm. point and and rightly so do you think that excuse me do you think that uh your are are you looking at a specialty of people who you're seeing as clients like i think that you would be great if if you talk to musicians right but i mean obviously you don't want to pigeonhole yourself but i think that this world that we live in being on the road the the pressure of the the pressure of of performing uh, the failure, the agony, you know, of defeat, all of those things, the the comparison game. We see all you know other musicians on Instagram and and think that we think that we should be a better player. All of these things, I think, weigh on musicians very, very heavily. And I think that there's it doesn't get talked about enough about what a lonely world it is. And we see it with with how many musicians you know kill themselves. Uh, I don't think it gets talked about enough. And I think that that uh, people who are looking for someone who can relate to them is definitely you, right? It, you've 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 been there, done that. Um, do you see that in your in your path at all, or no? Yeah, I definitely see that as um, an area that I want to specialize in. I'm still kind of finding my my personal specialty, but certainly working with creative people. Musicians in particular, but really any kind of person who works in the creative industry or is just passionate about creativity of any kind. You know, there are people that are writers and and uh, producers or, uh, you know, musicians, obviously, um, but any field in which the challenges of being um, sort of a right brain person in the left brain world, you know, right. Um, and, and the struggles that you describe in terms of the pressure 
um, to perform in certain ways, the, 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 the stresses that we put on ourselves, uh, and then dealing with not just success, but dealing with failure, um, dealing with identity. Those are obviously things that I, I really can offer, I hope, uh, from my experience, and that's what I'd like to give of myself and my work. Uh, right now, I'm working at a clinic called the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety, which I can see myself uh, at for a long time because anxiety is something that I really suffered with. Um, it's definitely an area where um, I'm specializing right now. And, uh, but it's really, there's so much crossover between all of these things. You know, I, I think most people can relate to some level of anxiety or, or depression or both in their lifetime. Um, trauma, addiction, um, you know, it's really just getting through life and all the things that are challenging about it. Um, so I haven't really honed in on one specific area that's, that's my area, but I think dealing with any of those things with creative people is definitely an area that I think will be uh, somewhere I want to, I want to work. So are you taking on new clients now? Yeah, I actually have yeah. some of my own clients. I'm, I'm what's called an associate marriage and family therapist at this point, which means I have my, uh, my degree in clinical psychology. I am registered um, as an AMFT, but I'm pre-licensed, which means that uh, I have a supervisor. Um, so in order, in other words, to take on my own clients, I ha it goes through my supervisor, not directly to me. Um, gotcha. But I have clients that I have that are directly, that are my clients through my supervisor. And then I have clients at the clinic. Um, I'm also probably going to start doing just some life coaching. Um, so that's, there's less restrictions with that. So I probably can reach more people um, out of state and, you know, over telehealth or whatever on zoom mm -hmm. or phone. Um, and just because I think for some people, it's really just getting a little bit of advice, you know, on some of the things that I have experience with and that, you know, certainly I can be helpful because of my experience as a mental health professional, but my background hopefully can be helpful to some people that are, that are trying to do some of the things that I did in the past. So I'm just trying to find you know, a lot of different avenues in, uh, by which I can reach people and, and hopefully be of service speaking, you know, doing speaking engagements and telling my story and, um, and this kind of thing that we're doing right now. That's awesome, man. You should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so what's the best way for people to follow along with what you're doing or, or maybe want to reach out to you and, and, and chat? Yeah, well, I have a, a professional website that's in the, the works right now being built. That's going up pretty soon. In the meantime, uh, my Instagram page, which is uh, at Ryan underscore Michael underscore Dusick, D-U-S-I-C-K, uh, is a good place to keep up to date on whatever I'm doing right now. Um, I'll, I post, you know, about the, the interviews I do and anything about the book and about um, – anything going on professionally. So that's a good place to keep up with me and to reach out to me. If you want to um, chat a little bit, you know, put some comments on there or whatever. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, but the website hopefully will be up soon and, and I'll link, you know, from, from Instagram to that. Perfect. And I, I'm telling everyone now, go out, get the book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, finding recovery. It is on sale in November. Do you know the exact date that it's going on sale? Yeah, it releases November 15th, uh, nice. but it's available for pre-order now. Awesome. 
So, and I'll link up everything uh, in the show notes of, of where people can find the book. And Ryan, again, thank you one for taking your time to come on and chat Two for being an open book, no pun intended, but, but your willingness to, to talk about this, your experiences, your ups and downs. Uh, and three, d- congratulations on the way that you've turned this around uh, from, from the things you've accomplished already with moon five. And now these, these new roads that you're, that you're going down, I think that you're going to, uh, you're going to do so well in that field as well. And also thanks. Thanks for really being an inspiration to me as well. Like I said, I've been, I've been listening to your, to your music for a very long time. So it's great to actually sit here and have a conversation with you. So I appreciate your time, man. Thank you very much, Nick. That's very, very sweet of you to say. And uh, it was a lot of fun talking to you today. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah, man. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks again. All right. There you have it, the one, the only Mr. Ryan Dusick. And you can check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 670. And... If you dig the podcast, if this is the first time listening or if you've been listening for a while and, and you want to leave a rating or a review, please head over to Apple Podcasts and you can do that. It takes about a minute. Leave a rating, leave a review, leave your comments. And uh, if you do, screenshot it and send it to me because I cannot respond to the comments and the reviews that are on there, which is unfortunate. So uh, if you leave one, make sure to send it to me because I want to personally thank you for doing that. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.